Welcome to the Healthy Hair Podcast. Your host, Dr. Amy Brenner, is a board-certified OBGYN with additional certifications in functional and integrative medicine. This podcast is meant to help women find reliable, relevant information to help them feel better, look better, and live better. Here you will hear in-depth information about hormones, sexual medicine, aesthetics, cosmetic gynecology, and functional medicine. Hi, this is Amy Brenner, MD, and today we have Dr. Anna Glazer. She's a Harvard and UCSF trained reproductive psychiatrist who launched her clinic, Women's Wellness Psychiatry, to help women across California who are struggling with mental health symptoms. So welcome, Dr. Glazer. Thanks so much for having me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about this. We haven't um, really touched on this at all in any of our podcast episodes. And uh, uh, I think it's a really important topic for for women talking about mental health as it relates to kind of air quotes, female stuff, end quote. Um, so tell us a little bit about your background and um, what you studied and how you ended up opening your clinic, Women's Wellness Psychiatry. Yeah, absolutely. So I did my undergraduate uh, back on the East Coast. I'm now in California. I did my undergraduate at Harvard and then went to medical school and residency, everything um, on the East Coast. So I graduated residency through uh, the Harvard Medical School, Massachusetts General Hospital. And then I came out West here to California and began at UCSF. I did a year long fellowship and then joined the faculty And within a couple of weeks, actually, of joining the faculty, we opened an OB psychiatry clinic. Basically, this was a mental health clinic uh, embedded in the OBGYN department to help women who were struggling with primarily uh, perinatal and postpartum mood and anxiety disorders. And that was all the way back in 2012. And as I continued to work in the clinic, it began to expand. And then in 2017 was when I launched Women's Wellness Psychiatry. I wanted to continue to serve this rather underserved population. Um, I think pregnant patients tend to be one of the most underserved populations because we just we don't have a lot of studies. A lot of individuals um, are very hesitant to work with yes. with pregnant most patients. Are so like, I don't want to touch a pregnant person. So <laughs> exactly, and they exactly. would just consult OB. And as an obstetrician, we're like, I don't know what to do. Um, yeah, yeah, so. and and so so it's interesting. It's um, you have pregnant patients with mental health issues, and so you know, oftentimes people are running away from them from two directions. And so I really wanted to to serve that population. So I launched Women's Wellness Psychiatry in 2017. And because of the need of this particular type of treatment, it's definite the clinic has grown by leaps and bounds and has now has we have a number of psychiatrists, psychologists, nurse practitioners and other kinds of clinicians. We actually are even this fall, we're launching an accelerated treatment program for women who really want to get a jump on treatment, who might be having some more severe symptoms, really to accelerate their treatment either during pregnancy or postpartum, so they don't have to miss out on their experience of pregnancy or bonding with the baby postpartum so they can feel better faster. So we're definitely expanding our services, and there's been a huge increase in the number of women seeking services, particularly in the in the context of the last couple of years, mm-hmm. with all of the additional stress of the pandemic, as I'm sure you can imagine. Oh, yeah. 
So I, at the end, we'll say your con- contact information. But I know when I listen to podcasts, I want to say like, who is this person? What is their website? So could you just mention it now? Yeah. So the website is my name. It's www.annaglazermd.com. And you can go take a look at all of the different services that we offer. I also link to my podcast so you can find my podcast there. I talk on topics related to women's wellness psychiatry. Um, you also link to my blog, which is uh, mindbodypregnancy.com, where I talk a lot about different topics also related at the interface between mental health and pregnancy and postpartum and just women's mental health in general, other kinds of hormonal issues. I work with a lot of women who are struggling with premenstrual symptoms or perimenopausal symptoms and how that impacts mental health. So what kind of in general patients would seek out your clinic? Yeah, so my clinic does this combination of reproductive and integrative psychiatry. The reproductive piece really refers to women across the reproductive lifespan. So we're talking about premenstrual symptoms, um, challenging fertility journeys, pregnancy, postpartum, and then all the way into perimenopause, really whenever there could be a hormonal component to mental health symptoms. And then the integrative piece really refers more to an approach. So it's the interface between complementary and integrative treatment options and kind of more traditional Western medicine. So in in our treatment, we certainly prescribe some of the classic traditional antidepressant, anti-anxiety medications, that kind of thing. But we also work a lot with botanicals and nutraceuticals and thinking about the role of sleep and sleep hygiene, um, psychotherapy, whether we're talking about individual therapy, couples work, groups, all of those kinds of things, other kinds of complementary treatments like acupuncture, massage therapy, ecotherapy, physical activity, nutritional psychiatry, all of those kinds of things. And so that's the integrative piece. And I actually added that a few years ago, mostly because it was something that a lot of my patients were asking more and more about. So I did an additional year of fellowship training in integrative psychiatry to get that expertise to be able to give my patients really what they were asking for. I love that. Like, and I, I couldn't agree more. That's what we've done in our practice from a gynecology women's health standpoint is, mm-hmm. is integrative is I still do the traditional take uteruses out, tie tubes, mm-hmm. right? Birth control pills, yep. that kind of thing. Um, but you're right. People don't, mo- many women don't want that and they do yeah. want more holistic, natural approaches, maybe um, botanicals or supplements or acupuncture. They don't just want to see, see the doctor, hear a problem, get a prescription for a pill. Exactly. Yeah. And they want that. Part of the reason I also started my own private practice was they also want time with the doctor. And I think a lot of times in more kind of traditional or, or corporate medicine, there just isn't that kind of time. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. So let's get into some of the problems that people would, would see you for. I saw on your um, website that you talk about PMAD. Um, and I gotta be honest, I'm not familiar with that. Uh, with the acronym, the acronym, like I, I know PMMD um, um, or no PMDD or PMS, but what is PMAD? So PMAD is this acronym that stands for Perinatal Mood and Anxiety Disorders. It's basically an umbrella term that refers to any pregnancy or postpartum related mood or anxiety condition, whether we're talking about depression, 
um, general anxiety, bipolar disorder, really any kind of mood or anxiety that is during the time of pregnancy or postpartum falls under the umbrella of PMAD. And how does somebody know if, I mean, most people have heard of the baby blues. Um, yeah. What's the difference between that and having a, a mood disorder or PMAD? That's a great question. So the baby blues is really common. It affects anywhere from 75 to 80% of women. It's this experience of the hormonal letdown coupled with likely sleep deprivation. And it's something that tends to onset within about three days postpartum peaks in the first week and really dissipates by the end of the second week and affects, you know, 75, 80% of, of moms postpartum. The difference is that is in the quality of the symptoms. So if a woman is struggling, certainly beyond that two week period, if she's having additional symptoms where maybe she's having trouble bonding with the baby or engaging with other family members, um, let's, I think it would, maybe it would be helpful to just kind of go over some of the symptoms of postpartum depression, which I think one of the surprising things that a lot of patients come in and talk to me about is they sort of expect that postpartum depression means that I just feel sad. And the number one symptom that I find in postpartum depression actually is anxiety. It's a feeling of being significantly overwhelmed. It's having those thoughts like, you know, this experience isn't what I thought it would be. I'm feeling so overwhelmed. This isn't what I expected life would be like. Those kinds of thoughts um, rather than I feel sad or I feel down. And so it's that kind of anxiety along with some of the other symptoms that which could be difficulty with sleep and and that's you know beyond the sleep interruptions of having a newborn it's you know your your newborn is sleeping and you can't fall asleep because you have all of these thoughts going through your mind you're ruminating on something um, it could be certainly changes in appetite where you should have a pretty good appetite because maybe you're breastfeeding but your appetite's really pretty low and your stomach is in knots um, it could certainly be a lot of feelings of guilt or worthlessness or just inadequacy as a mom. And then it could also be some of the, the more severe symptoms, um, like even thoughts of, you know, I don't know if I want to do this. I don't want to be here. You know, even thoughts of self-harm, things like that. And that inability to bond and attach with the baby, not enjoying things as much as you expected to or as much as you used to, and really just kind of withdrawing from from a partner or from loved ones. And so that's kind of that constellation of symptoms that can be postpartum depression. And really that entire first year postpartum, it can be a time of vulnerability for postpartum depression. It's not just the first few weeks. I have some women who, you know, they come to see me in their 10 or 12 months postpartum, and maybe they started to have symptoms, but it took a while to really recognize them because I do think it still takes time to recognize that what you're going through might be postpartum depression. How long can you say somebody has postpartum depression or how long could it last? It really varies. When I think about the vulnerability, I think about that entire first year postpartum. And I think, you know, without treatment, it can definitely last a long time. With treatment, you know, there's some really good treatment options out there. And I think that with treatment, part of the reason I do what I do is I find it so rewarding. Women get better and they get better quite quickly. When does somebody need to seek um, medical help? Is it if it's going on for longer than two weeks or when do they need to look into seeing somebody like um, the 
physicians at your practice or, or, or a psychiatrist or, or let me make this a twofold question is should they see a psychiatrist or should they see their obstetrician and when? So that's a great question. I think one of the challenges of seeing their their obstetrician is that oftentimes what happens is you have your six week postpartum appointment and then you don't generally see your obstetrician really again until you know potentially your next pregnancy. And so that leaves a whole lot more time beyond that six weeks where you might be struggling with symptoms. The other tricky thing is oftentimes, and, and I do a lot as much as I can in terms of you know, educational seminars and, and things like that for OBGYNs um, to, to teach about treating and managing postpartum depression, but it's still, you know, it's, it's not what you're necessarily trained to do. You're trained to manage the pregnancy, deliver right. a child, right? And so, especially when things kind of get a little bit more complicated, maybe it becomes more treatment resistant type of depression. And so I do think that you know, for certainly first line, reaching out to your OB because they might have some good referral options for you. Um, I think that, you know, if, if you're well past that six week window and you have a primary care doctor also reaching out to them, um, they might also be able to bridge you in terms of treatment between, you know, when you can get in to see a mental health clinician. But I really think that if you're having the thought, you know, I, I need more help or I, I wish I had more help or I need to figure this out, don't hesitate to to reach out for that and asking for help i think is one of the most challenging things to do in general but when you even have that thought you know am i struggling with postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety if you're even having that question in your mind that's when i would recommend that you reach out and and you seek even a consultation i mean one of the things that i often do is one-time consults for women who are sort of asking you know what am i going through and they might just want to talk to me about, you know, getting a treatment plan and, you know, working with their OB or with their primary care doctor on that treatment plan, but they just want that one-time appointment because they have a lot of questions. They want to learn more about what they're going through. And that's, that's my job. You know, the other problem with seeing OB, it, like I mentioned before we got online, it's been, I don't know, 12, 13 years since I've done OB, but there's a lot of problems with that system is number one, your appointment isn't set up for six weeks. So that's a long time to go. And at least when I was doing OB, you had your postpartum check in a 10 minute slot. So yeah. <laughs> not only are we checking is, you know, do your breasts look normal? Is your episiotomy healed? Talking about your bleeding, talking about contraception is there's not a lot of time for that in that 10, 10 minute, 15 minute slot to, to hear about this is, and if I did hear about it, then you're getting a prescription for a SSRI. Um, Cause that, that's what, a, that's what we had time for as obstetricians um, in a, in a busy practice that's, you know, seeing and taking insurance and that kind of thing. Exactly. Exactly. And I think the other sort of, person that is going to be working with, with a lot of these moms is also the pediatrician. So a lot of pediatricians, uh, who, because they see you know the baby at two weeks and, and a month, they might be able to see mom a little bit sooner than that six week appointment. So I think a lot of more pediatrics offices are you know screening for postpartum depression, but that doesn't mean that they are certainly at all capable of treating that. It's you know you, you screen and then you have to figure out where is this person going to be referred to. And 
yes, I mean, SSRIs are a really important component of treating postpartum depression and anxiety. And there's so many other components, like we talked about from that integrative mental health perspective, where psychotherapy is really frontline kind of treatment and other kinds of support. And you're right, 10 minutes is really not nearly enough time to gather all of the history and come up with a comprehensive mental health plan. So I do, I do, I know I have several physicians who listen to this podcast and as a physician who is not a psychiatrist, um, you know, cause you mentioned it, sometimes it takes a long time to get into a psychiatrist, at least here in Cincinnati is there can be mm-hmm. a long waiting period. So other than an SSRI, are there other things that a obstetrician can do or a pediatrician could recommend that they look into while they're in that waiting period? I would absolutely recommend looking into a psychotherapist and there's many different ways to do that. Um, Sometimes both the hardest and the easiest ways to go through your insurance company. I think sometimes they have a list of therapists who are in network. Unfortunately, the hard part about that is that oftentimes those lists are are rather out of date, Um, but certainly there's a number of also online search engines like Psychology Today, for example, where you can search for therapists in your area. And I think that psychotherapy is a really important part of treatment for postpartum depression and anxiety because just getting that additional support, that's number one. I think the other piece really is educating also the partner or anyone else who's part of the patient's world who's, who's helping them because one of the the things that often happens is there's a lack of time for self-care, lack of prioritization of self-care. And so really an intervention that can be made in the OBGYN's office or the pediatrician's office is to have that conversation about the importance of self-care. And, you know, when I say self-care, I think sometimes people think, oh, you know, I need to go get a massage or get my nails done. That's not actually what I mean. I mean, you know, thinking about self-care, even on a smaller scale basis of, you know, taking the time to sit down for a meal or taking two minutes to do a deep breathing exercise or taking 10 minutes to walk around the block. Really some of these small things that can definitely add up, but taking that time um, to focus on yourself, because I think there's a really significant return on that investment and having that conversation with mom about that allotment of time, whether it's for breathing, whether it's a, for a mindfulness exercise, there's so many apps out there now, um, Headspace, Calm, Insight Timer, all of these apps that help you engage in a mindfulness type of practice, which can be really helpful. There's some good data on that in the context of postpartum depression. So really focusing on some of these self-care and mindfulness interventions and recommending psychotherapy as well, in addition to the SSRI or even some uh, botanical options that might help with sleep, I think those could be really good interventions as well. You mentioned psychotherapy for those that are listening that don't know that. Could you explain what that means? Yes. So there's many different kinds of psychotherapy, but essentially psychotherapy means meeting usually one-on-one with a psychologist, psychiatrist, licensed social worker, marriage and family therapist. Um, There's many different kinds of of psychotherapists, but it's meeting one-on-one with that person, setting some specific goals for your mental health and using a variety of different types of therapeutic interventions. So that might be thinking about, okay, what are some of the the negative thoughts do I have and how do I reframe them? 
Or what are some mindfulness tools and exercises that I can begin to incorporate? Or what's the relationship between, you know, how I'm feeling? What, what am I even feeling? Like learning about your emotional language and how to express yourself emotionally and figuring out, you know, what are my stress points? So having those kinds of conversations one-on-one with a clinician who has that experience and expertise in mental health. And if you can actually find someone who also has expertise in women's mental health or even maternal mental health, you know, all all the better to to have that one-on-one support. And if, you know, the one-on-one psychotherapy isn't available, there's certainly also psychotherapeutic groups. So it's it's a small group of women with a expert clinician who's facilitating the group. There's also couples therapy if, you know, if you're struggling in the context of your relationship, especially with a new baby and working with a, uh, with a psychologist or other kind of psychotherapist two-on-one where it's the couple with the therapist to really help you move forward um, and figure out what some of the, the psychological obstacles might be and how to get over to the other side. Yeah, I love that you also offer couples therapy. I know back when when I had three babies, that was probably, at least for me, one of the biggest th- um stresses is I'm waking up in the middle of the night to feed my baby and looking over at my husband and him fast asleep and Mm -hmm. just kind of having that like negative thoughts of like, well, what are you going to do to help? And yes. um, And then you're home with, you know, a, a baby that, you know, is up all day, up all night. And, and then, you know, your husband comes home and is like, what's for dinner? And (laughs) The, yeah. Those kinds of stresses. So I, I'm a huge fan of couples therapy of working through major changes in life. Exactly. Yeah. And working through that couples therapy and, and some of the, I think some of the examples that you gave are such classic examples and, and they are for a reason, but I think so much of, so much of that is also, you know, learning to express yourself in the context of that relationship to communicate what you might need to your partner, because they also can't necessarily read your mind. And then the resentment can definitely grow and build. So, so working in couples therapy, the number one goal in couples therapy is often to work on communication. Yeah. Um, what are some risks of if you don't treat postpartum depression or PMAD, are you at risk for mood disorders later in life? Yes. So if you so there's a number of risk factors. Number one is it can definitely impact you, your quality of life, um, impact you know future mood and anxiety episodes. It can impact your child. Um, there's definitely a link between women who struggle with untreated postpartum depression and the neurodevelopment of the baby. Um, and then there's just kind of some practical physical consequences. Uh, untreated postpartum depression is associated with things like weight retention and so the consequences of that, um, poor nutrition and the consequences of that. So it affects both mom and baby. Anything you can do either prior to pregnancy or during pregnancy to reduce the risk of these mood disorders happening after delivery? Yes. So I think one of the most important things is recognizing pregnancy-related mood and anxiety conditions and getting those treated so that when you're going into the labor and delivery and postpartum period, you're feeling like you're at a good baseline. So that's the first kind of most important thing. Now, if you're also someone who's 
maybe you're not struggling with perinatal mood and anxiety, you're not, you're pregnant and you're feeling pretty good, or even even before pregnancy, it's really thinking about the self-care that, that we talked a little bit about before. So making sure you're in a good place, you have good structures and routines in place to take care of yourself, because those are often the first things to go postpartum. Um, I also talk a lot about with my patients, especially in the third trimester, of having a good postpartum plan. And so what I mean by that often is number one, having a plan for help. So what kind of help is are you going to have, whether it's family help, which sometimes can be less helpful, depending on the kind of family boundaries that, that you might have, but certainly family help, partner help, paid help. What kind of help are you going to have postpartum is number one. Um, number two in the plan for postpartum is thinking about your plan for sleep. How are you going to be able to maximize your sleep? Because sleep deprivation is definitely one of the risk factors for symptoms of postpartum depression. And so that certainly relates to the health, but also thinking about uh, making sure that your sleep hygiene, meaning the, the structure of the routine that you have before you go to sleep, all of those kinds of things are on point. So number two is sleep. Number three is thinking about your plan for breastfeeding. And the reason I ask women to think about this in advance is because challenges with breastfeeding is actually associated with postpartum depression. So that doesn't necessarily mean do or don't breastfeed. It's a very individual choice. And I think there's many reasons why women might choose to or might choose not to breastfeed. But I think it's definitely having a plan and also recognizing that sometimes these things don't always go according to plan and having some self-compassion and flexibility with expectations. So thinking about health, thinking about sleep, thinking about breastfeeding, thinking about the labor and delivery plan and pain management. And the reason I ask women to think about that is because poor pain management postpartum is also associated with an increased risk of postpartum depression. So making sure that you have a good plan in place for that and having a, a plan, again, open to the fact that the plan might not necessarily go exactly as you delineated, but to have some kind of plan for the labor and delivery experience, um, whether that's having support in the form of a coach or a doula or someone who might be able to help advocate for you but definitely thinking about all of those things in advance. And that's, those, are def, those are all of the components of the postpartum planning conversation that I have with all of my third trimester patients in yeah, terms I of think that's minimizing their Having risk. a plan, but um, yeah. uh, I think there's a country song of like, God laughs when you uh, make a plan. I wish I could think of the name <laughs> now. I remember when I was in labor, my plan was, well, I'm getting an epidural. Well, then my epidural didn't work. And mm, mm-hmm, I thought mm-hmm. I was going to die. So, um, yeah. yeah. Um, so having a plan is good, but it uh, doesn't always go as planned. Um, yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if you have time, if we can switch to it, or if a, another topic, maybe yes. at the other end of the spectrum about perimenopause and menopausal mood issues. Yes, absolutely. So that's, definitely been a growing number of patients in my clinic is women who are going through the perimenopausal transition. And I think that, you know, there's, there's so much, there's so much to talk about with this. Um, I think, you know, we could talk for a very long time about the perimenopausal transition and the impact on mood, but it's definitely a time when 
if you have a predisposition, whether it's a personal history of some mood and anxiety issues or family history of mood and anxiety issues, they can definitely be exacerbated during the perimenopausal transition. And I think one of the things that some women don't necessarily recognize is the duration of the perimenopausal transition. You know, it's, it's not a few months. It's oftentimes anywhere from, you know, three, four, seven, eight years to go through this transition. And during that time, there can definitely be an impact of the hormonal change on mood and anxiety and sleep and all of those kinds of things that um, become much more of a challenge during that transition. Yeah. And so if you're at risk for a true like mood disorder, like you mentioned, like anxiety disorder, depression, bipolar, you might not have ever had those issues in the past, but this could potentially be a trigger that kind of puts you over the edge. Is that what you're exactly. saying? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. If there's some kind of vulnerability, whether it's a genetic vulnerability or personal vulnerability, whatever it may be, uh, if you add into this, the if you flip the switch of the hormonal shifts, that kind of turns everything on. Right. So I'm a huge proponent of hormone therapy. I think what happened with the Women's Health Initiative is going to be one of those things where yes. I think we're already starting to look at like what a shame that was to kind of put in everybody's thoughts that hormones are, quote, bad. Um, and, and I see the pendulum sw- shifting, but it's going to be still a lot of work. And still so many women think that hormone replacement therapy is in general, unhealthy and unsafe. Um, But so many women come to us for hormone therapy. And one of the main issues is mood issues. And although I believe that hormone therapy can help with mood issues, um, whether directly or indirectly from sleep disturbance or um, aches and pains or indirectly, but also just directly. But it's not a cure-all and there's certainly definitely a need for some women still need to seek a mental health specialist like yourself. Um, could you touch on, on that and who could see a hormone specialist and who actually would be better served to see also in addition, a mental health specialist like your, like yourself and in, in your practice? Yeah. And, and so I think, First of all, just to your point, what you mentioned in terms of the women's uh, health initiative studies and and some of the negative stigma associated with hormones, I completely agree with. And I talk with so many of my patients about the fact that, um, well, we could spend a good time talking about the limitations of that study. But I think hormone replacement can definitely make the transition so so much easier. And part of that is like you said, indirect, where, you know, if you're treating all of the vasomotor symptoms, that's going to impact sleep and sleep has a huge impact on mood and anxiety. And it it really is one of those things where it's almost like a, a feedback spiral and you just intervene somewhere and the feedback spiral is going to get better. But I do think that the transition is often, it's more than just the hormonal change. I think the hormonal change is a obviously such a huge component, but oftentimes there's a lot of psychological factors that play a role and seeing a mental health clinician can be really helpful for that component as well. So for example, it's often a lot of times when you sort of enter this empty nest kind of situation and that psychological transition, there's an identity shift and an identity transition. I think there's unfortunately in society sort of the stigma that 
you know, perimenopause and postmenopause, you know, you're, you're kind of, you're, you're done, you're over, as opposed to this is the transition to a really good new part of your world. And so that kind of psychological transition can be really challenging for women. So working with a mental health specialist on that, and then certainly, you know, when you're having significant symptoms of actual depression or anxiety, um, you know, there's a number of antidepressant, anti-anxiety medications that in addition to treating the mental health component, also treat things like sleep and vasomotor symptoms. And so working with someone in the mental health space can be really helpful. And I actually do a lot of collaboration with um, integrative GYNs who, you know, we share patients and kind of collaborate where they might be focusing on the hormonal replacement component, and I'm focusing more on, um, you know, the, the mental health component. And I think, at least in my practice, sometimes when I recommend somebody to see a psychiatrist, there's there's still a little bit of a stigma to that of what you think I'm crazy. Um, but where I see a psychiatrist being so helpful is that you're the expert in there's so many new medications versus back when we were in residency. I mean, what did we have like amitriptyline and Prozac? <laughs> and, and so now there's so many different newer medications and mm -hmm. seeing a psychiatrist, they're the, the specialty that has expert expertise in picking which medication might be best for you. Yes, exactly. There's so many newer medications and they all have different sort of profiles of who's going to be the best person for this particular, you know, what's your cluster? How do you, how are you presenting? What's your cluster of symptoms to figure out which one's going to be the best one? And certainly the newer ones can often have sometimes fewer side effects or at least different kinds of side effects. So working with a psychiatrist who's in the know about those newer medications and can help you figure out you know, which one is going to be right for your body is really important. Are there any meds you like in that class that don't have the side effect of decreased libido, which is also a very common symptom along with mood issues in the perimenopause and menopause transition? Yeah, the interesting thing is, so a good number of the SSRIs and, and also the SNRIs, so those would be medications like venlafaxine, Effexor, those guys have a side effect of libido changes. And so when women come to me with that, we sometimes think about, well, if this medication is doing a really good job of treating your mood or anxiety, are there things that we could potentially add to it that removes that particular side effect? So, you know, whether that's botanical options like maca powder or root, or whether it's prescription options like uh, Wellbutrin, Bupropion. So we think about, you know, if the medic, how much is this medication helping you? Um, do we need to keep it on board and thinking about how do we remove the side effect versus transitioning to a different medication that might not necessarily have those side effects? Yeah, that's great advice. And that's where somebody like yourself in conjunction with somebody that's prescribing hormones would be such a, a great um, duo. I wish you lived here in Ohio. Well, I wish we had more integrative uh, GYNs like yourself here in California. <laughs> yeah. Anything else we should touch on? I know we could talk for hours about this, but, and again, I don't know if you have how much time you have, but I'd love to talk about like infertility, pregnancy loss, um, kind of yeah. mood issues related to that, unless you had anything else to touch on about um, perimenopause, menopause. 
Yeah, no, I would just encourage women to to not necessarily think of the perimenopause or menopause transition as stigmatized as it is, right? It's, it's something that we need to be definitely talking more about. Um, and actually that feeds well into this, the topic of, of fertility and, and loss, because that's something else that there's a lot of stigma in terms of talking about. And a lot of women don't actually talk about. And when they do, they are surprised at how many other women are going through a difficult experience. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we'll shift to the other end of talking about something that's, again, I think pretty sad is is pregnancy loss. Um, uh, as an OBGYN, most women, I think, have had a pregnancy loss at some point in their reproductive um, career, mm-hmm. including myself. And being an obstetrician, mm-hmm. I thought, like, you know, this is something I deal with every day. It's usually a chromosome anomaly, kind of God's or nature's way of making sure that m- almost all the babies are born that are pretty perfect. Um, So I knew that scientifically, but then when it happened to me, I was devastated, just devastated for months. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, at least the only cure was getting pregnant again. Um, And then now, like, I, I, I think my adult children, I had told them like, I never knew you had that. And why don't you ever talk about that? I'm like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, like now, like we wouldn't have Avery or Andrew and it was just meant to be. And, but it was a, it was a really sad time. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, even as an OBGYN, and I don't, I don't know if I had any great advice to get over that sadness. And thankfully for me, it was more of a sadness and not a, mm-hmm. in my opinion, not a mental health issue. It still, it didn't mm-hmm. affect my work relationships, but but I was sad for a, many yeah. months. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's it's a grieving period and, and people deal with grief in very different ways. And certainly, you know, whether that's connecting with others who are maybe dealing with a similar experience, um, you know, certainly depending on where you are, when you lose a pregnancy, connecting with people in different ways. There's support groups, there's family and friends, depending on what your family and friends are like from a support perspective, and even working with a psychotherapist through the grieving process to, to help you to help you through the grieving process. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean that there's any kind of mental health diagnosis per se. It's grief, and sometimes it can be really helpful to process grief and to learn how to express it in a healthy way with a mental health clinician. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't think there's a lot of resources for that. Perhaps there is if you lose a baby further on in gestation that's closer to term. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. first trimester um, can still be pretty devastating for people. Yes. Yes, it is. And I think that we definitely need to have more conversations about this so that people can also reduce some of the stigma associated with that. But having that help, whether it's, you know, if it's a, in the course of a challenging fertility journey, there's various online organizations like Resolve, which can help with that, um, and other kinds of online support. I think that's definitely grown in recent years for, for many reasons. But I think it's, it's good that that kind of support has grown because that means that there's more options for women to access that kind of support as they're going through these challenging journeys. But yeah, I think absolutely 
and, and of course, some people are much more private. They don't necessarily want to have that external support. But I honestly do think that whether it's connecting with your, your partner and getting the support there, connecting with your best friend, connecting with a clinician and connecting with a group online or in person can be really valuable regardless of when the loss took place, whether the loss took place at six weeks or 16 weeks. Do you have any advice for the, the friends, family members, or partners of these women who are going through pregnancy loss? Because um, at least I found that, well, you can try again. That's not very helpful. No, no. I think that not saying those kinds of platitudes like you know you could try again or this was all part of the plan or, or those kinds of things those are usually not helpful what i generally recommend is if you're sort of on the other side and you're supporting someone who's going through this well you know your role is really just to hold space for them to to kind of be with them to help to allow them to feel whatever they're feeling and not your job isn't to make them feel better it's really just to to be there to sit with them and to hold that space and that's what's actually going to help them feel better. Yeah, that's great advice. And I think people just don't know what to say. Um, mm -hmm. And they have well-meaning well intentions of, well, you can try again. And you were yeah. early. and But um, it, it, it's hard to be, a, I think it's hard to be a friend. And then sometimes people don't want to say anything because they don't know what to say when yeah. When, year around somebody that's experienced loss. And what I would, you know, one thing that you could say is just literally, I don't know what to say, but I'm here for you. Yeah, that's perfect. So yeah. What about recently? Has your practice just exploded because of the pandemic? And how has that affected women's health? Yes, it has. And so we, we've actually hired so many new clinicians because there's been such an explosion of, of need for mental health services recently. And it's affected women, I think, predominantly, or certainly more so than it's affected. Um, I think it's affected everyone, really. But so many of my patients who are moms, it's definitely affected significantly. And it's because of the additional burdens related to managing childcare, managing school at home, um, the additional stressors of worrying about kids getting sick and, you know, how do I get my kids vaccinated and how do I do that? And especially early on in the pandemic, so many concerns about exposure and, you know, where, where can I go safely? How do I keep my kids safe? Um, so many of these additional stressors, often the burden is, is higher on the women in the household. And so there's definitely been an explosion actually more so in anxiety conditions than than depression conditions, but both really in the context of the pandemic. And there's also, there's been a lot of what I'm calling with my patients decision fatigue, where you, you know, you have to make so many different choices, even as simple as, is it safe to go to this restaurant? You know, things that didn't necessarily used to be decisions. So there's a lot of decision fatigue there's a decrease in the amount of self-care, whether it's because the self-care that you used to do isn't as available as it used to be or, or whatnot. So there's less self-care, there's more decisions to be made, there's a lot of uh, health anxiety and um, significantly more childcare burdens because it means that you know, whenever there's an exposure, you're 
um, your nanny can't come or you, the kids can't go to school or what have you. So there's a lot, been a lot of changes in the context of the pandemic and all of that has impacted women's mental health. Yeah. It's great that there's practices like yours to help with that. Um, anything, somebody that is like, you know, I just haven't experienced this, but I want to be able to proactively take care of myself, my children, my parents. What can we all do on a daily basis where we don't have to end up as patients in your practice? <laughs> yeah. So I think it's really taking the time to, to take care of yourself and, you know, if you're a, a woman listening to this and you have a family, I think oftentimes there's a sense that, well, I have to put them first and take care of them first. But I would actually sort of take a step back and almost use like that airplane mask analogy where, you know, you put your mask on first and then you can put the mask on on the person next to you because you need to be able to to feel well, to take care of the people around you. And so that really means making time for yourself, whether it's healthy nutrition, whether it's getting some physical activity, whether it's getting some um, some natural sunlight and some of that vitamin D, um, whether it's developing a, a practice where you do a little bit of journaling every day or a little bit of mindfulness, whatever the case may be, taking that time for yourself to shore up your own well-being so that you can take care of the people around you. Yeah. Um, what do you think about mindset? Um, at least for me, I know when the pandemic was happening is I was, I never watched, I never watched the news. Um, in fact, mm -hmm. People would say like, did you hear about me? Nope. I have no idea even what you're talking about. And then when the pandemic <laughs> happened, I found myself in a cycle for, I don't know, about a year where I was watching the news all the time and mm -hmm. it just made me so grumpy. And I'm like, why yes. am I doing this? Like, why am I letting these awful, hearing about all these awful things into my head? Like, I, I, I don't, I don't need to hear about that. So, um, just being around positive people or watching positive things on TV where it's for enjoyment instead of things that are like giving me a anxiety attack. Yes. Yes. And I think, you know, unfortunately, I think there's a difference between watching the news and staying informed. I think that watching the news, unfortunately, is very, can be a very negative experience because I mean, that's honestly, that's also how the news makes money, right? It's it, the, the, the more, negatively valenced and emotionally powerful the news is the more you know the more eyes they catch and the and the the better it is financially for them so it is you know it is a business but that doesn't mean that you you can't stay informed in, in other ways and i think that you can absolutely stay informed in other ways and avoid watching the news that's going to make you feel like you know you're in this really negative place and, and negative mindset so i completely agree with you there what about friends that are happen to be more negative or family members that are just complainers or that kind of thing? Yeah, so I think surrounding yourself with people whose whose mindset is where you would like yours to be. I think that makes a difference. And you know, it certainly if it's a loved one and and they're struggling, then maybe that's the reason that they're having that negative mindset and you could certainly, you know, suggest to them, hey, have you considered this or that? But you know, not necessarily being pulled into those kinds of conversations, learning to set healthy boundaries with individuals who are actually toxic to your mental health, I think is really important. And 
that might mean that you move away from certain people in your life. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Glazer. If you can just give everybody again of how people can find you and all the other resources that you have out there for women. Absolutely. Yes. So my name is Anna Glazer. And if you go to my website, Anna Glazer, MD, that's A-N-N-A-G-L-E-Z-E-R-M-D.com. That's where you'll find my clinical website. You can scroll down to the bottom. There's a link to my podcast. Um, you could also go to my blog, which is mindbodypregnancy.com. All of those are ways that you can learn more about women's mental health topics and also be in touch with me with any questions. All righty. Thanks for all the info. Thanks so much for having me today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Her. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and the web. Go to www.dramybrenner.com to learn more. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute as medical advice, the practice of medicine, nursing, or other healthcare services. No patient-physician relationship is formed. The information in the podcast and any references, material or links are at the sole discretion of the listener and not meant to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Listeners should not delay or disregard obtaining medical advice for any medical issues or diagnoses that they may have and should seek medical advice from their healthcare provider for any such conditions.